Welcome to People's Church Podcast. Palm Sunday. I think we're all aware of what this one is about, and it's Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem for the final week of his work and ministry here on the earth before his crucifixion and resurrection. Big time stuff. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today, but let me just frame it a few different ways. Uh, this is a day of expectations, huge expectations. And uh, the crowd, the disciples, and uh, certainly the Pharisees or the religious leaders had great expectations. They all did on that day when Jesus is entering. And expectations are a big part of life. I mean, to live in a life without expectations would not be a good thing for you. You all have expectations. If you're on a bad weather day, you kind of have an expectation that tomorrow could be a worse weather day. Oh, there's, 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 you know, pessimists in the crowd. But you often think better, like it could be better. You have expectations, it's going to be better. And that's exactly where all of these people are at in different ways, shapes, and forms. There are some of you that are extremely, uh, I would call you extreme optimists. I can find out who you are really quickly. You're, you're just an optimist to the nines. Um, you're the ones that are expecting the Calgary Flames to make the playoffs. Okay, you pessimists. Okay, so <clears throat> let's, uh, what, what, what is the pessimist then? <laughs> the pessimist is this, is that the Calgary Flames will make the playoffs. I got one guy back here clapping, doing this for both. <laughs> Expectations are a part of life, and, and it's a good part. We want to keep them. We, they scare us a little bit. They scare us a little bit because of our, uh, oh, it might not happen, right? I mean, you grew up, what was, what was Christmas Eve about for, for you as a kid growing up? Expectations. You're hurting, your head's all full of expectations, right? And sometimes it matches, sometimes it doesn't. How many here have been married more than 30 years? Raise your hands. Whoa, congratulations. How's your expectations going? No, kidding, don't. <laughs> okay, so if you've been married more than 30 years, um, then you know, you've had, rode this escalator up you know, a couple of times and down on expectations. And uh, they're very important to have in life. Expectations are something that keeps us looking forward, keeps us looking at a better day for ourselves. We have three enemies, according to the scriptures, that fight against our lives and uh, our forward movement in life. Uh, Satan, the world, and then something that he calls the flesh, which is just another way to say yourself. So you've got three basic enemies that are against your forward movement. Satan, the world, with all of its false kind of values based on the here and now, the instant gratification model and not the eternal model or eternal plan of God. And then you've got yourself. Which do you think is the hardest one and the hardest enemy to face? It's not the devil, I'll give you that clue right away. It's not even the world, it's ourselves. It's thinking, it's, it's us. 
Because uh, a lot of times with expectations, we don't even want to live out there too far because we're afraid to fail. It might not happen. So you want to lower your expectations constantly. I'm only going to get disappointed. We're trying to avoid a certain outcome that we don't like the taste of, but we're not willing to risk anything in the recipe. And so everything in life becomes relatively bland to us. On this particular day, this was an explosive moment in Israel. It was an explosive moment in Jerusalem. This was a day uh, beginning, it was, it was happening just before uh, the Holy Week for them. And everybody had been anticipating the arrival of Jesus. Is he going to come? His popularity has soared. He is, he is in a, a extreme, uh, could we can say like, he, he is so far up in people's expectation and he raises their expectations. But their expectations aren't quite on. And if we take a look at and break down their expectation, we can learn about ourselves. Learning about ourselves and responding to ourselves is really key to our growth. But here, let's start with the crowd. Their perspective was basically this. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? See, they, they had been... We, we can't imagine this, but they had been under the Roman totalitarian regime now for literally decades and decades and decades. They have been in a position where they lost their national uh, presence and government in a way and they didn't have the identity uh, as a people almost. The Romans were taxing them uh, and their freedoms were constricted and nobody likes our freedoms constricted and they weren't in a very good place and they thought Jesus the Messiah was going to come and set up a physical kingdom in Jerusalem. That's where they were in this moment. And he was gonna deal with all the things that bugged them, that they hated. He was gonna deal with the injustices of the Roman system. He was gonna raise the national pride and the national rulership of Israel, restoring David's throne in Jerusalem and then ruling out of the world. That was their concept. They saw their own advantage and that's as far as they could see. Their perspective was what's in it for me. In John 12 and 13, well, just before that, you know, when they thought Jesus was there to fulfill their wishes, they shouted this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is, and they really hit this, the king of Israel, meaning we are so close to giving these guys the boot. We are so close to our liberation. Often we are so limited in our view of freedom and liberation. And we are looking for things within this planet that we want him to actually change and liberate and just bring total freedom. And that isn't what Jesus was going to do. And then we find just not even uh, a week later when they realized Jesus was not going to do what they expected they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. That's that rise and fall we kind of mentioned last week where we see this amazing rise and fall of Christ's popularity. Jesus just used it. Every day he set up, every day met the plan where it needed to be met at the time it needed to be met. Jesus was working the plan, but what was the plan? Well, it wasn't what these guys expected. The plan wasn't to set up that physical kingdom in Jerusalem, write all their justices, lower their taxation, boot. You have to be very careful, Christian, in the day and age in which we live, in any day and age, 
that you are not reducing God's work and kingdom down to just what you see on this planet or overcoming the things that you think are unjust. Here you have to be very cautious about how you employ. You are here for the kingdom of God. He rules differently. He rules in hearts that are surrendered to him and through them he produces an eternal family. So we have to be cautious about how we respond in this world. It can, we can make our faith only what's in it for me. And if it's not working for me, if it's not somehow liberating what I want, if it's not somehow you know, fixing everything that was wrong, if it's not quickly getting this done in my life, we can find ourselves just within a short time saying, just take it away. Just take it away. We can ourselves play out what was going on here. See, Jesus had, was not going to meet their expectations that day. But if they actually got the picture, he was going to exceed any expectations they could have possibly had. We'll see that. So the result is this. When, when, when they have this perspective, what's in it for me, then your tendency is going to be to be self-centered, and that's going to lead you to deception. You're always going to be living with a good part of a lie. Jesus had the authority. Jesus was here for God's work, the Father's work. It was God in the flesh to do the work he wanted. But that work was not reestablishing some throne and making laws. People think that, you know, that is the answer in this world. Let's make more laws. Let's make more laws. Well, what I know about laws is as long as the human spirit is the way that it is in a fallen state, a state of rebellion, every law that's ever been made only touches that rebellion a little bit harder. How many remember around town here not too many years ago where they had people that were watching the stop signs? Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are saying, well, you will remember if you ever got one of these tickets. Don't you remember? They're watching the stop signs. And if you didn't stop and then count to one, one thousand, two, one thousand. Now you remember? Okay, how many of you got caught? How many of you did this? You stopped doing one thousand, two, one thousand. Every law written will be broken and many times intentionally just because we don't like the law. He didn't came to write a law to try and control us from the outside in. He came to fulfill the law of God, which is love, which is grace, which would be purchased. So that love would be that which exceeds all other connections that we would have with God. Jesus Christ wasn't coming to set new laws that we'd find new ways to break. He was coming to work in the hearts so that our hearts changed. Can you imagine, with a changed heart, how that actually brings greater constraint? A heart filled with love is also filled with great constraint. A heart that is not filled with love is a heart that is going to act out in a way that what's in it for me. And, and you will be open to different deceptions. The religious leaders were the other group. Their perspective was, I'm in control. I'm in control. Uh, they had the power under the Romans. They didn't mind the Romans as much. In fact, they used the tension between the people and the Romans 
as a way to place themselves in between and to become an authority that was kind of standing in between and protecting and we'll work it out for you, but never really bringing any solutions, only to sustain their roles and their power. Ah, so where is that all about? Well, that comes into our lives also. See, control is something that sometimes we, we want that, and if we have enough of it, we don't mind appeasing the other parts of that kind of permit that or feed that. These guys had no interest in necessarily the Romans being booted out totally, as long as the Romans sustained their power. They didn't want to lead any rebellions that were outward. They didn't want any great show because then the Romans would clamp down and then they would lose their power. There was all kinds of things involved with these leaders, but you have to think in the terms of power and control. The Pharisees, it says, said to each other when they saw on what happened on Palm Sunday, when they saw the crowd cutting down these palm branches and branches and throwing them before the Lord as they come in. That was, by the way, just a way to say, you're the victor, you're the victor, you win. It was that kind of thing. Hallelujah, Hosanna. So they were, as they saw that, and they told Jesus, they said, don't, you know, these people cannot be worshiping you the way they stopped them. And Jesus that day said, no, lids off, lids off. I know by the end of the week what I'll hang on, but that's exactly what I want. And then he said, if they don't, the rocks will cry out. At that point, when they saw this sort of incredible upheaval amongst the people, they said this in John 12, 19, the Pharisees said to each other, we've lost. We've lost. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So Jesus has a choice at that moment. If he was really interested in just an earthly kingdom, walk into it. Do it. He does none of it. He doesn't take that move because that's not what he was here to do. Now the result is when we are in control and we like that in our lives, my desire for control creates an unteachable heart. You can't be taught anything because you're in total protective uh, mode and you're not interested in any truth that will challenge your authority or challenge your control. You become an unteachable heart. And that's where they were at. Now later, here's the good news. After Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and then the Holy Spirit coming, empowering the church, and it started right off the bat, it tells us that many of the Pharisees and religious leaders became Christians. They turned to Jesus in, in those days. That's why then there was a great persecution that started to build. When you want control too much, you're not interested in new information that doesn't already fit with the scenarios that you've chosen. And that's not a great way to live with expectations. The next group of people is the disciples. They're an interesting crew. I mean, all along, Jesus has done some remarkable things. The transfiguration on the mount. He tells them, don't tell anybody. He's just healed 10 lepers. He, he's just doing this all the way along. He's just kind of, saying quiet, just be quiet about it because it wasn't his time, but this is his time. 
He knows that this is the wrap-up week. He understands what is about to happen. He has his own expectations. So the disciples, their thing was that they just, yeah, okay, their perspective was just not like this. When he told Peter and he said, Peter, and he's telling the guys, guys, just days from now, I'm going to be actually crucified. I'm gonna, I'm, they're going to put me on a cross. I am going to die. But this is all planned, guys. And that's when Peter said, no, Lord, not that way. No way, it won't happen. You see, oftentimes we are defining Jesus only in the ways that we somehow understand he must work. And Jesus says, I will be crucified. I will be placed on a cross. And he turns to Peter and he actually rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. That's a rebuke, by the way. Get behind me. What is happening within that, that is the disciples are looking at and they have this full expectation. They are rising along with the star that they are hooked to. And as that star is gonna walk into his own earthly kingdom, they will rise along with him. In fact, they'd had discussions before about um, even a mother got involved and said, you know, can my sons be on your right hand and your left hand? I mean, this was what their whole expectation was. Somehow Jesus, his rising star, would bring theirs along with it. Not unlike some of the oiler people right now who are rising along with McDavid scoring 359 goals or whatever he's got. No, what's he got? He just did 300, but he did 61 now. 61. It's just like I hooked it to the right wagon, and that's not how it's going to go, Lord. It's not how it's going to go. Matthew 16, 21 to 22 says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Wow. Jesus had a, that response to Peter and shut him down. Sometimes you see, we wanna control God's plans to such a degree that we're weeding out God's very work. And God is working, but not at your speed. But God is working. But I don't see all the signs I want to see of his working. But God is working. God will do his plan his way. Result is my lack of trust in God's plan produces a blindness. A blindness to the work that God is already about and that you don't understand. There's many ways that God works that you will not understand. My ways are not your ways. My, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I mean, it's just we are not on the same wavelength. And I'm going to do things that don't fit with your agenda or your thinking or how you think it should be. You say, Lord, I want you to fix this marriage. We're lacking this. And all of a sudden, things get a little bit worse and things start coming above ground. And all of a sudden, it's not, you know, it doesn't feel any better. But he just says, be patient. I'm working. You keep praying. You keep doing what I ask you to do. And I will do what I do. 
and he keeps doing it. Then there is Jesus' expectations. Now, we don't have to think about it, but Jesus had great expectations. Jesus knew, Jesus knew that we needed him badly. Without him, there was no hope. He knew that the very crowd that day that was shouting Hosanna, blessed be God, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They, he knew that worship that was going on was gonna, not, it was gonna change when they didn't get what they expected. He understood that the Pharisees and Sadducees understood that this was a collision in which they would, they would have their power challenged. And so he knew they would be conniving to finish off Jesus. We only have one option. We have lost this. We gotta kill him. There's no middle ground anymore. It's over. He understood his disciples didn't get it. He understood that no matter how much he had taught it, walked it, or even plainly said it, they didn't get it. But they would. And that there would be a day that they were, all the pieces of the puzzle would come together and they would be the ones that carry the gospel. He understood that. He understood that he would be betrayed, that denied just in days by two disciples in particular. He understood that they would all run and there would only be one left at the cross that was standing there with his mother and that was John. He understood every one of them would have abandoned him and ran. He understood that he was gonna pay the physical price but greater than that, he understood that he was about to take on something that he had never known, something that would cause something between him and his father that he had never felt and that was he was gonna take on every one of my sins, past, present, future. He expected that, he understood that he had never felt that burden. He had never known what it is to have uh, you know, that sense of sin and, and what it would bring. So he took every sin upon himself. Now here's the thing that's really interesting about sin and the payment plan that Jesus put together is that there, he doesn't do it like, okay, we just did the past sins. He paid for every sin. Every person that lives in this city right now Every person, every sin they've ever committed from knee high to a grasshopper all the way till the time they lie parallel in a casket, he has taken their sin. Every sin. All that is left is for them to actually receive the gift of salvation through an act of faith and now it's been paid for so grace is theirs. Total grace. He understood that that could only be purchased by sin's uh, penalty being exacted, which was death, which he would make it his own. He knew that this was the time that he was going to pay for every bit of that. He understood that they was gonna be mocked. He understood that during that there would be complete injustice in the trials. And he didn't stand up and say, this isn't a fair trial. This is he just went through it, it tells us, like a lamb that wouldn't speak. He just took it. And why? Because it was for us. His expectation was this, that if I don't do this, you don't get this. He got it. 
He understood that they were going to treat him in every which way possible it was negative and that they would believe that somehow by, by killing him that this would be over. But he also had the expectation that there would be a new beginning. You know, Jesus' expectations, he knew that we would destroy ourselves without him. We would destroy ourselves through these seven self-destructive weapons. Let me give them to you. Here are seven self-destructive weapons that we all will recognize. And these are things that destroy us. And as they continue to be practiced throughout life without God's grace, without God there for, uh, uh, can we say, writing it in our lives, these things destroy people. These are things that psychologists know are these seven things are the basic things have the seed beds to destroy people that they're caught in. Shame. Shame. To only have one relationship to your history, which is every time you remember certain events, you just get that shame wave, which you quickly try to push aside as quickly as possible. But that shame wave comes and it keeps you from being more honest. It keeps you from actually growing. Shame is a huge issue for you and I. Another one is uncontrolled thoughts where thoughts come and they press and then we give over to these thoughts and pretty soon we have uncontrolled thoughts that are directing us and influencing us to such a degree even though we don't even want them. We don't want them. But we can't seem to end it. We can't seem to stop all of those thoughts coming. We can't seem to stop when they, when they come to us. And they can be lies. They can be things that have been spoken into your life like you're worthless and, and you're a worthless kid. You know, why can't you do anything right? And those things can hammer around and echo in our hearts and our heads. And all of these kinds of thoughts that are, are, are really meant to destroy us can be uncontrolled in our life. Another one is compulsions. Compulsions, very destructive weapon. Compulsions are just sort of like within your flesh, you have these desires and they come and they're strong compulsions. And it's sort of like we phrase it differently. We will say uh, things like, you know, I just couldn't stop myself. The compulsions were too strong. Um, it's a compulsion that we uh, give some ground to because our flesh wants that. It's where our flesh is saying, I want this. And very, very strongly. Compulsions. Fear. Fear, another one. This was an expectation. Jesus knew without him, this would destroy us. A fear that is based on our own, we know, insecurity and in our own life, we try to secure our life, but we cannot. Fear is something that is destroying a lot of lives today. It keeps people stuck. It keeps people hiding. It keeps people from acknowledging the things that they need to acknowledge so that things can heal or go forward or grow. Another one is hopelessness. Hopelessness. This, if you, to, to live in a hopeless state is the most depowering thing that can happen for you. I mean, we've heard about people in concentration camps where they maintained hope even in the worst of circumstances and somehow just kept them alive and kept them moving forward and kept them intact as a person. But then you've heard about people that have given up to such a degree as hope does not exist. 
He knew that only hopelessness would grow and that it would become a tool that would destroy us. Bitterness. Bitterness is, is a condition that affects all of us to some degree in our lives. It's where the injustices, the unfairnesses, the things that have happened to us that we get very bitter uh, about. And we look at maybe the microcosms around us and we see where they don't treat us with respect. And we get bitter. And that bitterness just basically starts to turn your heart into something that really God cannot cut through. Bitterness is a horrible thing to get caught in. It will control and feed the negative all the way through your life. And finally, the seventh is insecurity. Insecurity is a little bit bigger word than even fear in a way. To be insecure means that no matter what I am meeting, I am meeting it from ground that is insecure in me. I'm not willing. I don't feel strength. There's no confidence. I just am insecure. You can't become you. You can't let the best parts be developed. You won't take on challenges. You shrink back into corners. See, he knew what your life would be if he didn't make this trip into Jerusalem. He fully expected that that's exactly what's going to happen to you. And we know that to be true if you've lived long enough. Jesus' perspective was this. I am in it for you. I am in it for you. It's not, it's not for me like it is for you where it comes down to this. Uh, you know, what's in it for me? Jesus didn't go, what's in it for me? He said, I'm in it for you. Totally in it for you. Because without me, these are your traps and they will spring on you. And all of them will bring destruction. I am in it for you. And I am in control. That was the second thing with him. It was so key. He's saying, I am in control. I've got it. He controlled what's happening each and every day. He controlled going to the cross. They didn't, they didn't take his life from him. He laid down his own life. He went to the cross. He voluntarily did this. There's an old hymn that used to be sang a lot, and it was the idea of uh, he could have called 10,000 angels. I mean, the idea was that but this was a realm where he allowed this, planned it, he he, he controlled the timing. He controlled everything about it. And he's saying, I am in control. And the third is, it will be this way. Because this is the only way I have to go through the cross. Father, if there was a way. Remember the, remember the prayer in Gethsemane? Father, if there's another way. Nevertheless. I'll do what you want. He wouldn't have minded the cup being taken from him if there was another way. This is what is so earth-shattering wrong about thinking there's many ways to God. Jesus' own confession is saying, hey, if there's another way that this can work out, but not my will. Father, your will. It will be this way. You will be the way, son. You will make the payment. You will set things right. 
and now this incredible gift that we've given to people of sovereign choice will make their choice and you've empowered them for that choice. Listen to this in chapter 13 of John 1 through 7. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him. He knew, fully expected it, to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, that includes you, believer. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you are one of his own. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. You see, Peter, I am in it for you. Peter, I am in control. It will be this way, Peter. How did Jesus wash your feet? He went to the cross. He became your servant. He's demonstrating his servant. So there was nothing really surprising to Jesus of what was happening that day. It was all expected. There's one more expectation. It's not in your notes that I want you to write down though. And that is this, that Jesus expects you to win. See, he's expected you to fail. He has. He expected you to fail when you made those bad decisions. He expected you to fail under the pressure that has come upon your life uh, in different ways, relational pressure, financial pressures. He expected you to fail. He expected you to fail morally. He expected you to make bad choices. He expected you. That's why he's taking the long ride in on a donkey through the eastern gate, ending up on a cross, because his full expectation of you is that you would fail. You would never hit the standard. He knew that you would fail. You think of the greatest failure in your life that produces shame in your life. Just for one moment, in your own mind, grab that moment. You know, he expected that to happen. He didn't cause it to happen. It didn't mean it had to happen, but it did happen, and he expected it to happen because you have sin in your life. He understood that. And even as a believer, there are things where you think he didn't expect that. He's expected everything about your failures. You say, my failures are pretty huge. He expected that. He paid for them. They are paid for, past, present, and future. There's nothing about your life that is a surprise to him or your choices. And so when you are going back on your life and doing some historical record, and that record includes this of, of shame and the things that will really destroy you, he's saying, stop this. That's already was expected. 
and it's already been paid for. It's already been paid for. And the worst thing you can do with his payment plan is to say, you know what, somehow I still feel the shame and I still feel all of the guilt and I still feel all of the wrong that I committed in that, then you are missing out on some of the best things that God has done for you. He expects you to fail. He knows that you're not going to have a perfect week this week. He knows that you're not going to have that week. He knows you're going to make a mistake this week. He knows you're going to make some bad choices this week. He understands that you're not going to manage your life in this most holy way all week long. He understands that. And he doesn't want you living in shame because he's made the payment for that. He has expected it. It doesn't surprise him. That is why he went to the cross. He expected to have to be your lamb. And for every Everything that you will ever disappoint or fall short on with God. He expected that. But there's one more expectation. He still expects you to win. And why does he expect you to win? Because his grace, if you will live in it, sets you up to practice at living better. Grace lets you live better. When you don't live in grace, you will continue in shame. When he's already made the payment, and that only weakens you and you are not able to go forward because shame has rooted itself and it holds you back. And he said, why? Why would you let yourself be held back? Why would you retain this destruction within your life and your mind and your thoughts and your heart and your emotions? Why would you retain that in there? When I paid for this, quit trying to pay for what's already paid. Quit trying to deal with a bill that doesn't exist. Instead, he's saying, I want you to understand grace. I want you to live in grace. I want you to build forward. I know you're not gonna get it perfect. I know that. I have expectations of your failures but have expectations of a win but that win is different than just you going out and getting it right that win is there because of my grace in your life that gives you an opportunity to always build better always build a little stronger but we instead tear down we pull out the the studs of our walls because we are living in shame when he's paid for your sin, believer, you are free from your sin. Not some, not a little, not, you know, conditionally. You are completely free. There is no more bondage upon your life, past, present, or future. You're not going to get all your decisions right, but he already has expected that in his payment. He has already paid for that. So it's all pre-done. So what's the hard part about living in grace? Why is it so hard? Because you're up against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And every one of those things are going to try and remind you of your failures. They're ever going to try and remind you of what you got wrong and the list that's not so great in your life. They always want you to make decisions off of those things. You want to win every spiritual battle? Then you apply grace to your life. Paul said it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying grace living Bring strength into my life so that I can continue to do all things. I can move forward. I can leave the past. Have you left the past? Because he's paid for that. 
How many have ever done a wrong thing in their life? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Bigger question. Is that wrong thing still holding possession of your life? Then you need to learn to live in grace. You are free. And that is what all those people really wanted, really. Free us from the Romans. No, I'm going to free you from your sins. Free us from all the taxation and the heavy boot that's upon us. No, I'm going to free you from the biggest debt you got. Jesus expects you to win because of grace. And that's how you win. So if you've had a week this week where you pulled the wrong dial and it wasn't, didn't work out so good, you sinned, you, you know that, or you got things in your life that, man, they hang on. They shape me even today. Grace has already been given. Your response is to trust him and trust his crucifixion in your place. And to trust that because he overcame hell and death, he offers you a brand new way to live. He expects you to win. He expects you to win over that greatest challenge you're going through right now. He expects you to win over the attitudinal challenge, the financial challenge. He expects you to win. He expects you to win over these, these challenges and tests of your life. He expects you to win over where the enemy's hitting at you or the world is hitting at you or your own flesh is hitting at you. And that's the one that's really gonna bite into this holding the wrong stuff. The other is just it reinforces from the outside, but we can hold the wrong stuff in us. Not things based on the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. This week. This week. He expects you to win. By grace. To be free. Father, I didn't get it all right this week. I acknowledge that. Thank you for the grace. See, grace is, I don't get what I deserve. I get what I didn't deserve, which is God's favor and God's merit and God's love. As we close this just for a moment, I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes and for a moment just to focus a little bit internally here. As you focus internally, I want you just to look at the things that have still got their claws in you. They've been holding you back. Those memories that haunt you, the things that, the, that are, you, you just have the regrets for. And Look, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, would you understand that that is not how he sees you? 
That's you holding on to the wrong you. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who defines you. Just take that memory right now that's got the claws in you and recognize that's not coming from Jesus. That's coming from Satan. That's coming from the world's idea. It's not coming from God. You must not embrace this any longer. You gotta set yourself free. And how do you set yourself free? You, you acknowledge the great grace of Jesus Christ. He has forgiven you. It is cleansed. You are free. He has paid this completely. There is not another installment. It's not on the payment list. It is over. The cross was enough. The blood that was shed cleansed it whiter than snow. You are free. Father, as you know our hearts, I pray, Lord God, that where in our hearts we hold things, where, Lord Jesus, your work is already finished, the math of it, But we've listened to wrong voices and we've held on to things in our life that they're destroying us. I pray that today there'll just be a release that will come upon each and every believer so that we can walk in the grace of God, that we can enjoy the grace of God, that we can continue to get up out of ditches and walk to the wind and keep winning over the tests and trials and keep winning over the things that come against us. I thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that even though you knew what was going to happen that week, you knew it, you expected it, you did it. All because you love us. All because this was the only way. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you find this program helpful or would like to learn more, please give us a call, 780-539-0572 or email mail at peopleschurchgp.com.